we think that it's a linear path and it's just not. For me, it used to be skyscrapers and yachts and helicopters and multi-million pound deals. And that's not what it's about for me. It's, it's dog walking in the countryside. It's simply being able to say, no, this isn't going to work out. We're not taking you on as a client. Having the freedom to do that is far more important than having a big business. Afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cashflow Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Crichton, and today I'm joined by John Lamberton. Lamberton, is that right? It is Lamberton, yes, that's it. And John describes himself as a self-confessed lazy entrepreneur and investor. He says, since exiting the day-to-day running of his business in 2016, which is a while ago, John has focused on helping ambitious lifestyle business owners improve their business through his mantra of simply leave your business 1% better each week. That sounds like me. Yes, it does seem like you. I want to go back to the beginning. What did you do before you started your own business? Ah, so I was a civil servant. I okay. followed my, my parents' advice to get a nice, safe, secure job with a really good pension, you know, great career prospects, join the civil service. The only slight problem with that was I absolutely hated it with a passion <laughs> to the point whereby I'd been moved to a different department. I'd been a civil servant for about six years and I was moved to a different department. And suddenly the job that was okay suddenly was not okay. And in the three-week induction period for my new role, I decided that I was not going to stick this out and I needed to do something. Now, at the time, the the press was full of, it was the dot-com boom of the early 2000s. Okay. And it was full of Martha Lane Fox, Brent Holman, Larry Page, all the, all the young 20-something-year-olds having ideas for internet stuff and just becoming millionaires overnight. And I thought to myself, do you know what, John? You can do this. You, you can, you're 20-something. You have ideas. What could be so difficult about becoming an internet millionaire? Well, I didn't own a computer, let alone have access to the internet. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So other than those small, small problems, which I thankfully did overcome, what was going to stop me? That sounds great. So you just decided okay, I'm leaving civil service and I'm going to start my own business? It was almost, that was the only option open to me. Okay. I'd looked at different roles within the civil service and the consensus there was you've only just moved to a new department. We can't move you for another year. I tried to get a promotion, turned down for promotion. You haven't been in this role long enough. There was lots of civil service box ticking that just really, really annoyed me. I applied for roles in the private sector only to find that the skills I'd built up in the civil service weren't really valued in the private sector. And I was seen as too young because although I was, I I joined the civil service, I started when I was barely 16. So So I started very, very early. So by the time I was, you know, experienced in the civil service, I was still very, very young for the private sector. So I couldn't get another job. So I just thought, well, I'm going to become rich like these guys. So I'm, it can't be that difficult. 
So I headed to, now it wouldn't have been Waterstones because they weren't around. It must have been WH Smith's. Okay. And I went and I picked myself up a copy of Internet Marketing for Dummies. Because <laughs> I figured, look, that's me. I know nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. I could turn a computer on. But building websites, not a clue. Marketing, no idea. Running a business, never, never done it. No, my dad was an electrician. My mum worked in a sewing factory. My brother was an electrician. My sister worked in a fish factory. I knew nothing about business. I knew nothing about marketing. I knew nothing about computers or the internet. So everything I now know, I had to figure out. And it was that very, very strong desire to leave the day job, which made me do the work. Because I had to, I was putting in probably two, three hours a day on top of my day job yep. to try and get this thing off the ground. And I think I mentioned in my, in my first book, Big Ideas for Small Businesses, it took me nine months to earn my first payday. And that was a whopping £13.51. That was my wow. first check. Like, do you remember checks, everybody? Yeah, 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 I do remember checks. In fact, I think I've got a checkbook somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where it is. But yes, I do oh, remember no. checks. But yeah, I, I wish I'd framed that check. Now, I wish I could look at my wall and have that check framed because that was the moment when I knew I can do this. I have actually, yes, in terms of hourly rate, I was probably on four and a half pence an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd proven the concept. I'd proven that I can do this and I just need to scale up now. So yeah, nine months, 13 pounds, 51 pence. Nine months later, I walked out of the civil service never to return. Probably nine months after that, I was doing six figures a year, but it was that first nine months that was so pivotal because I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had to learn really quickly. I had to try lots of things i had to get lots of things wrong and I had to just keep trying and keep working at it and keep iterating and keep improving you know we said about yes. leaving your business one percent better each week i think i was probably leaving my business one percent better each day over yeah. that period and just compounding those gains were tiny they were minuscule but they were being compounded every time i learned something i i removed one problem it was like an episode of breaking bad i fix one thing and something else goes wrong and what, what was it that you first started doing then? What was the so, first business as such? Oh, well, what would you expect somebody who doesn't know anything about making money on the internet? What would you expect their very first topic of, uh, of business to be? Something about making money on the internet then. How to make money on the internet. <laughs> that was it. That was my very first product. So, yeah, it was very much fake it till you make it in the early days. It was... You know, I didn't know what I was doing, so I figured, well, why not show others how to do it? I'm almost embarrassed to say that now, but that was where I started. And clearly, I didn't do very well. That's why it took me nine months to earn £13.51, yeah, yeah. yeah. because yeah. the bulk of those those £13 didn't come from the how to get rich on the internet stuff that I was trying to sell. It came from these things called freebies and competitions. So my first website evolved into a little resource where people could find out where they could get free stuff on the internet. So if you wanted a sachet of shampoo or you okay. wanted to try a new pet food or a new uh, washing powder tablet, then 
Procter & Gamble would come and they'd say, oh, we've got X number of samples of the brand new Purcell tablets to give away. We would say, oh, great, we've got a database eventually of housewives and students who love free stuff. And they all signed up. They got their free sample. Procter & Gamble got feedback on that sample. It shrunk my clothes or whatever. And it was a win-win. But that took a good couple of years to get to that point to figure out who my target market was and what problem I was actually solving for them. When I first started out, I just thought, oh, well, I want to make money through the internet. So I'm going to help other people to make money through the internet. And clearly, I didn't know what I was doing. It was the blind leading the blind. So I needed to find my niche and really, really niche down. And was that where you started reading business books? I think so. I think Internet Marketing for Dummies led into probably Rich Dad, Poor Dad would have been the next book I would have read. I've read that book now nine times over the last 23 years. Every time I read it, I'm in a slightly different place. Okay. So I get something different from it. But yeah, it became, you know, the, I think the millionaire next door was one I read early doors. It was, I became a sponge because like I said to you earlier, I, I knew that I knew nothing. So I needed to learn. So a lot of it was tactical in the early days. It was very much, okay, I need to figure out how to code. I need to figure out how to get traffic to a website. I need to figure out SEO back when SEO was on Ask Jeeves and Alta Vista. No one had heard of this thing called Google. Yes. You know, social media didn't exist back then. So I needed to find out what copywriting was. So I bought a book on copywriting and I just became, I would almost describe myself as a student of what works. Right. Just kept on reading, kept on being a sponge and kept on implementing everything that I read. Yes. Okay. Okay. So how many businesses have you had? I'm almost ashamed to say I've lost count. Okay. Which shows you that they weren't all very successful global brands. Um, Officially, it's more than 60. You were quite sort of happy to, well, you were quite not happy, but... You knew when to say, this isn't working, let's shut it down, let's try something else. I've I've got another idea, I'll try this. It was, absolutely. Probably in the early days, it was very easy to have an idea on the Monday, uh, register a domain name on the Monday, put up a really horrible-looking one-page wonder website also on the Monday, and be ranking number one on Google by Tuesday lunchtime. Uh, and earning money by Wednesday. And that was how quick the feedback loop was in that day. I'd have an idea, find out no one else had figured out this idea, launch a website, it would rank. I'd go, brilliant, next idea. And this is how I ended up being, I tried to be Richard Branson and just have all these different businesses in very, very different sectors. But yeah, sooner or later, those domain names come around for renewal again. Yes, which is a natural way of saying, would you like to pay another £35 to keep this business for another two years? And if the answer to that is no, you haven't got a great business there. No, no. How did you hone it down to what it must have been in in around about 2016 when you decided that you were going to sort of exit? Yeah, so that that was thanks to Google. <laughs> so Google built our business. We had the the one marketing pillar really of SEO. Search engine optimization was the only very, very big sledgehammer that we used to crack the walnut. And so as I said earlier, get an idea, launch a website, make a load of money. Easy. 
until about 2012, 2011, 2012, when Google's famous Panda and Penguin updates came out. And these basically were designed to penalize what they called thin content websites, or what I described earlier as crappy little one pages (laughs) with no content. And all they were designed to do was get in the way. So if you were searching Google for, I don't know, 0% credit cards, I would have a website just optimized for the keyword 0% credit cards. And I would just go, you want a 0% credit card? Go to Capital One, go to Egg, go to MBNA. And all I was doing was being a middleman and trying to get in the way of the Google searcher and the end merchant. Right. Google didn't really want that. So they basically kicked all of my websites out of the rankings. So overnight, we'd gone from having... Oh, geez, I, I would, I mean, one of our brands, probably collectively, we had 100,000 people a month coming to the websites. Wow. And a day later, we probably had 350 people wow. coming to the website. Wow. They literally, 99% of our traffic went overnight. And that was really, really scary. But there was one business which wasn't really impacted. And that was this one little business whereby... I didn't just have a thin, crappy little one-page website. I actually had a kind of 40-page website. There was a little community attached to it. So lots of people actually naturally went to – they sought out the website because it was useful and helpful for them. We had a mailing list. There was 13,000 people on this mailing list. So every other website just went straight in the toilet, apart from this one, which carried on – as it was. So I figured out, aha, Google can take away all my rankings, but they can't take away my mailing list. They can't take away my relationships with my clients. They can't actually take away the people who I can help. And that was that moment where I realized I need to stop being Richard Branson and trying to have the mobile phone company and the record company and the wine company and all these very disparate entities. I need to be I need to do one thing for one company. And so I said, look, I'm going to do this business. It was a sports betting business. And I said, I'm going to do the marketing for the sports betting business. Because the week before, I would have been doing the marketing for the sports betting business and the customer service for our serviced office rentals business. And I'd write a press release for our mobile phone insurance company and i would i don't know go back over the design logs for our ogarve travel guide website and it's like it was just so random yes and i my attention was so spread it was so shallow i couldn't focus on what i needed to and it was that realization that yeah i need to do one thing for one business i need to laser focus down on what works it's interesting when you talk about the the sports business because many, many moons ago, I used to work for, is it horse racing that you sort of specialize mm. in? Yes. It is. I used, yeah. I used to work for, he used to be a journalist and he started like you would, at that time, you phoned and you got tips from people who told you you know, this horse is really good and bet on it. 
And the tipsters made a fortune through this company, an absolute fortune. And hearing about, and I knew that you had this horse racing sort of business, it was quite interesting to hear how it's evolved. It's no longer sort of phoning in, is it? It, You just sort of, do you log into the internet? Exactly. Yeah, it's still tips and things. You just reminded me there because that's how I first, my first experience of the tips, the model was actually a completely different business that we used to run, which was supplying 0845 numbers, local rate numbers. Yes. We partnered with a, a telco company and we were able to offer a revenue share. One of our clients did horse racing tips and he said, I don't want an 0845, I want an 0870. So it was, I think, it wasn't premium rate, but it was 10p a minute or something like that. Uh, national rate, 10p a minute. And I think he would have earned, I don't know, 2p a minute, 2.5p a minute on that. And sure enough, you'd ring this guy up and every day he would say, good afternoon. <laughs> Welcome oh, yeah. to today's horse <laughs> racing tips. <laughs> Well, what a day we had yesterday. And about five minutes later, you'd yes. actually get the tip. Yes. So we drag it as long as possible. But this guy was so excitable. Every time he had a winning tip, my phone would ring. And he'd say, John, John, were you on it? Did you see it? Oh, my God, it was amazing. You know, I, I, I told you we'd run like that, didn't, didn't I tell you? And I was, he was so passionate about it. Now, I know nothing about horse racing. I know marketing. So that was banked. A few years later, I was working with a guy called Malcolm in Newcastle on another completely different business. We gave away lots of, it was to do with a freebie business, we gave away lots of CDs and DVDs with him. As a part-time business, he ended up selling his business for $7 million or something. But as a part-time business, he was into his horse racing. And he said, I figured out, you know what they do with these 0898 numbers? I do it on the internet for free. He said, I've got this little model here. I've got this horrible looking website. Give me your email address. I'll give you a free tip every day, completely free. He said, but if you join one of these bookmakers via my affiliate link, yes, I, I get commission. I'll give you another free tip every day. I went, okay. He said, that's it. So that's the entire model. I went, oh, that's great. It's peak. Malcolm was doing 25 grand a month from this business on holy, top of holy. his day job where he sold the business for seven million just from his bedroom as a fun project because he loved horse racing again that went in when we sold our first business in 2007 we sold the freebie business i hunting investments and i found this investment on ebay free racing tips.co.uk and i went oh mocum can use that uh, so i literally didn't even ask him i just bought it yeah and i went to him and went mo mo I've got the perfect domain name for it because his website was horrible. It was like, I don't know, steady eddies, each way uk. I know I've just made that up. <laughs> but it was horrible. I went, oh, free racing tips. So it's exactly what you do. And he went, nah, I don't want it. Went, oh, oh, no. what, what do you mean? It's brilliant. He's like, nah, I don't want it. I said, well, so if you don't want it, mate, I said, I'll, I'll end up developing it myself. And he went, yeah, crack on. He said, I'm not. You know, I'm not privy to the, you know, not precious about the idea. You go do it. So I sat on that domain for about two years because I know nothing about horse racing. If you want horse racing tips from me, I am definitely not the person to ask. And then, yeah, one day I'm at a networking event and I'm chatting to this fashion blogger 
Okay, so he's a fashion blogger. Yeah. So yeah. we got on quite well. I said, oh, what, what do you do outside of fashion? I went, oh, man, he said, I, I love the horses. I said, all right. I said, do, do, do you bet on them? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, I've got a system. Went, oh, <laughs> you know. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I, I put all the data in this spreadsheet and I've ranked this by this and I give it a rating if it does that. And at the bottom, it just pops out a couple of horses. I went, could you come up with like a free tip every day and then another one if we had people join our affiliate That's exactly what my system could do. We need to have a conversation. So literally started a joint venture that day. My eBay purchase, his knowledge, my marketing knowledge, we put it together and that business grew from a £500 investment in 2007 up to doing kind of, well, it's probably over £4 million now. Wow. (laughs) And do you like horse racing now? Do you go to the horse racing? Uh, I appreciate horse racing a lot more than I used to. I get excited when I'm watching horse racing. I still cannot tip for toffee. No. You know, the, the weight of my money on a horse's nose causes it to not win. I, I have several people, obviously in my network now, who are very, very passionate about horse racing. They absolutely adore the sport. And if I enter into a conversation with them, I know it's not going to end well because I cannot bluff my way out of it. Like, no. Oh, what do you think is going to win this one? Well, who's the favourite? <laughs> <laughs> Who won last time? Is there a course and distance winner in this? Yeah, I, I don't know enough to bluff my way through it, but I, I no. definitely appreciate the sport so much more now. There's so much goes into it. Uh, it's a huge industry. It is a huge industry. It's not like me where I'm, I only bet on the Grand National once yeah. a year. And usually it's, I look at the names or the colours and I pick and you know, I'm pretty successful, so maybe you should have me. <laughs> you definitely should. I've never picked a Grand National winner. Have you not? Never. Nope. Well, no. I, second I, place I, is the best I've had in the National. We, it, it, as a company, we've tipped the winner, but I personally have never backed a winner in the National. Oh, blimey. No, it's a big competition in uh, my family because I've got two sons, and um, the oldest son is in big competition with me every year to see who can get the Grand National winner. And he'll say to me, who have you backed this year, Mum? And I'll go, but done so and so and so and so. Why? I just quite like the name or wearing a nice colour or it's a woman. Yeah, yeah. I think my mum was always uh, number seven or pink jersey. The Grand National. There's always a good story. Yeah. So you pick the story. There you go. There's a tip. So 1% Club. How did that come about? Probably, yeah, it started. So 2016, Jason and I had decided, so Jason's my business partner. We've been working together for more than 20 years now. We were trying to optimize the business so that it didn't rely on us. We always wanted it to work without us. And it was this summer of 2016, whereby I think the year earlier, we'd been offered £2 million for it. We looking at exiting, went and saw some business agents who said, yeah, we can get you £2 million for the business. We're brilliant. Great. We've cashed out. A week later, they emailed and said, no, we, we, we're not confident we can find enough buyers to get a, a buying frenzy going here. You know, you're welcome to pursue a sale yourself, but it's not going to be through us. And we just went, we don't know what we're doing. No. Should we just keep it? And we said, well, one of the conversations we had with the potential buyers was the need to systemize. Because they said, yes, yeah, hugely profitable. It's you know, got a great customer base, but it's a little bit reliant on you two at the moment. And I did explain, look, 
it doesn't rely on me for the tips. Trust me. (laughs) But it did rely on me for all the marketing, for design, for the upkeep of the website, for all the systems and processes that weren't in place because we were doing the systems and processes. So Jason, I said, look, we kind of got to systemize this business a bit more than it is now so that we could like take our hands off and say to a buyer, yep, this business still makes the same profit it did 12 months ago, but actually it doesn't rely on us at all. And there was a period where I think I went, I think I went to France for like five weeks and I handed over to Jace. I then came back to the UK. Jason was heading away for two or three weeks. There was one day where we were both in the country. And so we did this little handover as we always did. And it was like, ah, what fires need putting out then? And he was like, um, yeah, none really. Everything's, everything's going swimmingly. I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. What what's coming up that I need to know about? Um, no, <laughs> nothing really. Everything's good. Oh, how are the team getting on? Yeah, yeah, fine. They all know what they're doing. Um, they're all happy. Oh, mate, we've done it. We've achieved it. We've we've systemized our business so it doesn't rely on us. And we we celebrated like mad, and we brilliant. We've we've exited our business. Great. What now? What are we going to do now? Yeah, <laughs> and that was the issue. Was what do we do now? We were early forties, or I think I, I would have been late thirties. Jason would have been early forties. Oh, and I know, he's, he's fifty next year. You know, is he? He is. Yeah, I, I want to get that publicly so everyone knows. Jason is fifty next year. Wow, big celebrations. It will be. Yeah. So. We kind of said, look, we're too young to just hit the golf course, get some yachts and just retire. So what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm keen to help people out, and particularly helping small business. I'm really passionate about small businesses. I I just have this natural affinity. I think it's because I'm a Plymouth Argyle fan, a natural affinity for the underdog. Yeah. When I'm on watching a movie, it's all, oh, I want the little guy to win every time. Anytime the football match is on, it's like, whoever is the underdog, I'm cheering him on. So I thought, I want to help small businesses. So, so like, let's put together some kind of like mastermind or incubator, some kind of group. So we ended up saying, right, six people who we handpicked these six people and we said, look, we think we can help them come around my kitchen table and every month, I'll set you some homework. I'll answer any questions you've got. I'll give you some reading to do. I'll give you a book of the month. And we'll just help you. And after six months, the six people became eight people, became 10 people, became 12 people. And 12 was the limit because that was how many seats I had around in my kitchen, yes. including the little fold-out computer chairs that we pulled up from the garage every month. And one month we had a 13th person arrive. Oh, no. And then it became, well, you're going to have to stand. because <laughs> there is. So by the time it became standing room only, that was the moment when I said to Jace, it's great that we've really helped these 12 people, but I'd love to help 1,200 people or 12,000 people. How can we do that? And I said, I'm going to write a book. And he said, oh, that'd be a great idea. They say everyone's got a book in them. And so, yeah, 12 months later, Big Ideas for Small Businesses was released. I stood on stage, by the way, at that book launch and said I was never writing another book again. And how um, many have you written now? I've now written four books now. 
Well done. <laughs> uh, and I've got the bug because that idea of constant, never-ending improvement, being a sponge, I've just leaned into that even more now. So I, I read the books and I write the books now and, crucially, follow the instructions. So, yeah, the 1% Club kind of evolved from that kitchen table, let's grow it into a book. It then became a podcast. It became a website as well. And yeah, six people around the table became 12, became 13. And at the moment, it's just over 100 people all over the world. We've got members in New Zealand and Florida and quite a few in Spain. Literally, I, I, I had a little chuckle. Sarah and I went on holiday to Spain last month and we actually met up with I think five one percenters who were either on holiday in Spain or living in Spain now. And I remember chuckling to Sarah and saying, there were some months we didn't have this many people from Plymouth at our Plymouth meetings. Yes. And now we're on the you know, we're thousands of miles away and we've got more one percenters here. And it's it's amazing how it's grown. It really yes. is. And any business can join the one percent club, can't they? If they, they if, they, if they Google one percent club, they'll find the details there. I would, yes, they will. They may also find Lee Max ITV Game Show, oh, also yeah. called the One Percent Club. Just want to point out, Lee, if you are listening, I had the name a good three years before <laughs> you did. Um, so if you do Google One Percent Club, make sure it's a business website. We yes. do get lots of inquiries to our website. By the way, the website is uh, BigIdea.co.uk. If you go to that website, click on the One Percent Club link but we do get inquiries from people complaining about the questions on the ITV show and telling us that I think you'll find the correct answer to last night's question was this which and applicants people that want to be on the show as well to me they should automatically fail because they've not noticed that they're not emailing (laughs) ITV they're emailing some (laughs) random businessman from Plymouth so talking about the 1% Club, I asked the one percenters mm-hmm. what questions they would like me to ask you. Oh, God, this is going to be trouble, isn't it? <laughs> and some of them, I think, are – there must be some background knowledge. <laughs> there must be some sort of story behind the questions. Are there questions around flamingos I'm, I'm, I'm reading the question thinking, what? <laughs> so Miriam English has asked mm-hmm. – what probably unrealistic thing, but not entirely impossible, could happen tomorrow that would make it the best day of 2023? Oh, God. And Caroline Guthrie <laughs> replied, does it involve puppies? <laughs> uh, I think Miriam is getting a puppy and maybe oh, rather excited oh, about I see the prospects of what's coming there entirely unrealistic thing that could happen um could happen tomorrow that would make it the best day of 2023 it's interesting because everything all my ethos is around like consistent constant never-ending tiny gains yes which for me is how business has grown where i think lots of people like to look back and say oh it was this massive step change it was this one thing i could Lee Mack could go on ITV1 tomorrow and say, oh, by the way, did you know that if you own a small business, there's another one called the 1% Club and all the small businesses in the UK should join the 1% Club. He could say that. Would that make it the best day of 2023? Not for our onboarding processes. No, no. Because no. we'd get a load of like people completely green, wet behind the ears who shouldn't 
be one percenters no. randomly signing up. Stephen Bartlett could tweet about one of my books or invite me onto the podcast. Would that be? That would, would be. It would be a step change, but would it be the best thing of twenty twenty three? I don't know. Okay. Okay. That's a that's a tough one. I was I was going to say as well. Just because you want to join the one percent club doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be invited in. Is that right? We've become a little bit more selective as we, as time goes on because we've identified again. I think this theme I've probably mentioned a few times today: who we can help the most. Yes. And the idea of leaving your business one percent better each month or each week, rather, there's a certain business that that suits. If you are very very new to business, as I was back in the day. Well, improving things by 1% each week isn't enough. No. If you are at last chance saloon with your business and this is your last roll of the dice, again, a weekly 1% gain isn't going to cut it for you. Probably the biggest, the, I'd say the biggest reason not to join is if you don't have time. No. The amount of people who join the 1% club and then say, oh, it's great, but I haven't got time to implement any of these improvements. I haven't got time to come on the coaching bills. I haven't got time to do anything with it. We've even got a time management masterclass that people haven't got time to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say if you haven't got the time to, and it doesn't need a lot of time, 15 minutes, half an hour a week, to find a 1% improvement, implement a 1% improvement. That's the time you need. It is a paid group. So if, you know, it's currently £117 a month for new members. If that scares you, you're probably not going to be a good one percenter. If you haven't got the time or the inclination to work on your business, if you're not coachable, one of my favorite jokes of last year was um, my, my coach told me I'm not coachable. I thought, well, I already know that. Yes. We do <laughs> occasionally see people like this. And the more we actually have conversations like this, where we say, if that sounds like you, you probably aren't going to be a good fit. It's I'd much rather that, you know, listeners to your podcast hear this and think that doesn't sound like it's going to be good for me. I'd much rather that than convince people it'll be fine. Come on in. You'll you'll be all right. No, you need the time and you need the inclination to actually implement it. And finally, we do have what I described in uh, my latest book, The False Exit, as a no dickheads rule. Yeah. So if you are only in it for yourself, if you're a self-serving person who just wants to come along and pitch to the group you are going to be bounced out the door very very quickly yeah yeah so simon beck has said if you could change if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self starting your entrepreneurial journey what would it be and there again he said my guess something to do with compounding uh, yeah, see, I do like compounding this whole, you know, the reason the 1% gains work is because you compound the 1% gains. If it's a straight yeah. linear 1% each week, you know, you end up, well, you still end up 52% improvement over the year. But when you compound that gains, that's when we end up at 68, 69%. I'm asking an accountant here. What? Yes, I know. Have I got my numbers right? Yes, you have. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, it's when I was first starting out, Probably either to focus on the long game because I could not envisage age 23 or whatever it was when I first started where I would be now. 
I couldn't okay. envisage that. So I had this finite goal of leaving the day job. Once I left the day job, it was don't return to the day job. And then my next goal was pretty much become a millionaire. <laughs> now, there's Make a bit of a gap between there. And yes. I got caught up, particularly in the early days when I was earning lots of money, whereby I'd go to a meeting and someone else would be earning more money than me, which then made me feel bad. And so I stopped playing my own game and I started just looking across to the other lane and seeing, oh, that person's got more than me. And I got distracted. I talk a lot, and you will have seen this in the 1% Club, about this ambitious lifestyle business, the balance between ambition, drive, growth, wanting to set quite tough, quite ambitious goals, wanting to prove yourself, but also having that lifestyle in mind, whereby for me, it's lots of holidays, uh, lots of free time, not working too hard when I do work, spending time with the family, looking after my health, prioritizing, you know, hiking on the moors with the dog over in box zero. I forgot all that back in the early days. And I was just, yeah, how do I make more money? How do I become a millionaire? How Once I'm a millionaire, how do I become a multimillionaire? Yeah. Okay, now I'm a multimillionaire. Lord Sugar's a billionaire. So it's that never-ending go posts. And I think, yeah, if I instead just focused on what's the lifestyle I want? Because I never asked myself that. And is in my first couple of books, I don't know how I sold copies of these books, by the way, but there's a photo in these books of me not looking very healthy, shall we say. I'm about five stone overweight. I've got a cigarette hanging out my mouth. I have a glazed expression <laughs> on my face. I am just a picture of poor health. Yes. And that was me, age 25. I'm a millionaire at that point. I'm living the dream. I, I was in Spain when that photo was taken. But if I'd continued on that path, I, well, I might not be here today. Because no. that path was 100, 125 hour working weeks fueled by caffeine, alcohol and takeaways. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I was compounding. I was compounding yeah. hustle culture and just a money focus over a lifestyle focus. Don't get me wrong, lifestyle businesses are not about making cupcakes in your kitchen for minimum wage. There's ambition in there. I genuinely have drive and I want to, I want to push myself. I want to be the best version of myself, but not at the expense of my lifestyle. No, no. I I mean, I say to all my clients now, what's your goal? What's your goal? I mean, even with the startups, if startups come to me, I usually say to them, what's the goal? What's the, the dream? What do you want at the end of it? Hopefully they won't say to me, I want to be a millionaire. <laughs> Okay, Martin Ross has said, what keeps you motivated? Which is interesting. Ah, motivation. So obviously, yeah. you've got the lifestyle now. Mm. You've done the book, The False Exit. Yep. Is here. Ah, there uh, it is. Which is really interesting. I really enjoyed reading it. So what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? I think if, if I go back to my first book, Big Ideas for Small Businesses, that was laid out in sections five sections relating to what i called my magic ingredients which are kind of the the five ingredients that every success whether that's you know successful investor a successful businessman a successful athlete a successful parent a successful marriage they all have 
these ingredients in place. And you can, if you reverse engineer anybody successful and say, how did they do it? You'll link back to these five ingredients. And those are goals, desire. I'm going to look up now because they're painted on my wall. Uh, goals, desire, knowledge, environment, and action. Okay. So you've got to have a goal. You've got to have a clearly defined goal. Where are you going? Secondly, you've got to have that desire. It's got to be a burning desire. You've got to be willing to pay the price of achieving the goal. So I, you know, I can sit here and say, I have a goal of absolutely six-pack abs. And the, my desire for that is not very high. Because <laughs> the minute you say to me, the minute I have the knowledge that to get six-pack abs require, requires me not to eat cake... Yes. My desire to eat cake will win through. So that's not the right goal for me. So the motivation for me comes back to those first two ingredients. A goal that is a very strong desire. My motivation to figure out, to get the knowledge and to craft the environment and to take the action that I needed to, to leave the day job, was so strong that despite working for hours every day, for months on end with no sign of it working. I'm just throwing money at it. I used a quote in my first book from my mother-in-law who said, and the quote I gave her in the book was, why is he wasting his time and money on this internet thing? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love to remind her of that every now and then. But I was just, I was persistent and I was not going to fail. We've all heard failure is not an option. No, that. Yeah. Is failure is not an option when your desire is strong enough that you will do whatever is, I will pay whatever price to get that go. That is the motivation. And where I think people perhaps struggle with a lack of motivation, it's where they have a goal that they don't desire enough. They're not willing to pay the price. If your goal is so strong that you want it, so badly enough that you are willing to feel dissatisfied with your life until you get to that point. And there's a balance where that becomes very unhealthy, but then that's something, again, you can set as a lifestyle, almost sat-nav, bringing you back on place. You've got to be willing to pay the price. And that, for me, motivation, what does it say? The word motivation comes from motive for action. So what is the motive for your action? desire you've got to want it bad enough that's really really interesting because normally i only hear that when you hear actor and actresses or artists or creative people Mm -hmm. they talk about that because they will live through anything and everything and no money but their goal and their desire to be or to do what they do is there and usually it's creative people. I haven't heard that with business people before. So that's a really okay. good take. That's yeah. a really good take. And that makes me think, is my desire and my goals aligned? Mm. So I'll let you go away and think about that. Because yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people almost use the two interchangeably. What do you want? That could be a goal. It could be a desire. And goals are easy to set. But asking yourself you know how high is your desire or meter yeah how badly do you want it do you know what's required 
you know, I can set a goal. I don't know, I'm going to pay my mortgage off in the next three years. Do I know what the price of that is? Do I know what I'm going to have to go without? What sacrifices am I going to have to make? How much harder am I going to have to work? Am I willing to pay that price? Yeah. And I think you've got to ask that second question. That's really, really interesting. I'm glad Martin asked that question. Well done, Martin. So Gareth Burton has said, what's his most important piece of advice he gives to his 1% members? Uh, oh, well, that's easy, isn't it? Just leave your business 1% better yes. each week. That That is without, I mean, obviously we've got to say more than 100 1%ers. Over the past six years, we've probably helped 150 one percenters to improve their business and again it's a better better business that's high level stuff i think i think that's what we do is we we encourage business owners to stop thinking about growing their business and having a bigger business and instead we get them to focus on improving their business and having a better business now that may mean more profit it may mean more money may mean more turnover it may mean scaling up but it doesn't always mean those things sometimes it means scaling back sometimes it means actually you would be better off with a smaller business cutting your team in half looking at your margins and actually focusing on what you want to do with your time you've got a very and i we speak to a lot of people in the in the club you've got a great business in the club but you don't enjoy it and you're you hate your business why do you hate your business you created it you are dr frankenstein and for many of us, we've created the monster. Well, that's our fault because as small business owners, we do have control. We can say, I'm deciding to close this part of the business down. Yes. You know, yeah. we think that it's a linear path and it's just, well, for me, it used to be skyscrapers and yachts and helicopters and multi-million pound deals. And that's not what it's about. For me, it's, it's dog walking in the countryside. It's not having to work it's being able to have a no dickheads rule yes it's being able to, you know simply being able to say uh no this isn't going to work out we're not taking you on as a client having the freedom to do that is far more important than having a big business yeah and that's 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 kind of sometimes difficult to do because i know as an accountant i you know in the past i've had clients that i haven't particularly liked mm. and I haven't particularly liked working with but you continue working with them because you think well I'm making money mm. what I now know is I don't want to work with those people yeah I only want to work with people that I enjoy working with yeah if you but could it, go back in time to the the day they became a client and you had the knowledge Again, there's yes. one of those magic ingredients again. You have the knowledge of what that client would be like. How much would you pay to not have to work with them? Yes. And the funny thing is, John, I have a, a gut feeling because each and every single one of them, I had a gut feeling that, no, this isn't going to work. Yep. But I didn't listen. I just carried on. And even now, sometimes my gut will be saying to me and I'll be thinking, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You'd think I would have learned just to go, no, no, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. So I need to I need to also get on to Stephen Gibbons because he's asked quite a few. And one of them he said is, who has been your favorite guest on your own podcast? Okay. 
Uh, well, we're, we're over 100 episodes in now. So our podcast is called The Ambitious Lifestyle Business Podcast. There's a theme going on here, isn't there? Yes. Um, and we've had a couple of what I would class as you know, famous business authors on the podcast, but that's not my favorite. I, I fanboy out, believe me. When I see one of my favorite authors, I get to interview the people whose books I've read and yes. have been part of my journey. I love that, but that's not my favorite. My favorite is talking to what I would call a real small business owner when I'm talking to them about normally a major decision or a contrary way of thinking that they've had regarding their business and their lifestyle. We ask every single guest the same question. What does an ambitious lifestyle business look like for you? And as I said, we've done 100 episodes now. We've probably got 100 different answers. There's three that, three that come to mind. There's Dan Harrison. So Dan Harrison is a website developer who I've known Dan for probably 10 years. I've been part of mastermind groups with him. And Dan also got caught up in the bigger, 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 grow, grow, grow movement. And he came to us and said, right, I want to be a millionaire. This is, this is my plan. This is how I get to creating a million pound business. And we drove down, why do you want to become a millionaire? Ah, if I become a millionaire, this is desire again. How bad do you really want it? Yeah. If I become a millionaire, I'm going to buy some land and I'm going to have some woods on this land. And in this woods, I'm going to build this fantastic log cabin and there's going to be a lake there and I'm just going to chill there on my own. Great. That, that sounds brilliant, Dan. You know you can book a place like that for about 200 quid a night, don't you? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So why don't you like go find your dream one and just try it out? Okay. So he did for a weekend. Came back. John, hated it. I hated it. <laughs> oh, it was terrifying. It was it was dark. It was there were all these weird noises around. Absolutely hated it. There was no internet. Like, great. And he figured out then what he really wanted, what he truly desired, and everything he wanted that he thought he wanted. He wanted to be there for his son. He wanted to have uh, the time to spend with his girlfriend. He wanted a particular car. He wanted to live in a particular part of town. What does he need? Five grand a month. Profit. £60,000 a year. From I need to be a millionaire to I need five grand a month. Yeah. And he was already earning probably 3800 a month. Like, great, you're you're 80% of the way there, mate. I was like, oh, fantastic. Second one that comes to mind is Chris Harris. Chris came to us. uh, He was a local businessman running a very successful £5 million business. He had a big unit on the industrial estate here. Wasn't making a lot of profit, but five million turnover, uh, winning all sorts of awards, and everyone was very, very proud of him. And he came to one of our local meetups back when we used to do local meetups. It's all on Zoom these days. And he sat down with the world of the weight, the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he went, well, "I feel like jacking it all in, you know, and just going to walk dogs on the beach." <laughs> and went, "Okay, what? Well, first of all, what's what's going on? What's happening?" And he kind of explained what was going on and all the hassles, and so. I think he was expecting me to turn around and say, it'll be all right. It'll be all fine. We'll tackle this problem. We'll tackle that problem. But I actually turned around and said, so why don't you then? What do you mean? Why don't you go walk dogs on the beach? What would that look like? Oh, well, I guess I could get a van and I could charge people this much per dog to walk them on the beach. And I could walk six at a time 
And I used to be a, a Royal Marine, so I could do like commando courses up on the moors. And oh, I could, and he became really energized. Two months later, he shuts down his five million pound business and he becomes a dog walker. Wow. And suddenly now he's actually making more money. But he's energized and he's in love with his business. Absolutely loves his business. He is now known, he's the most successful dog walker in Plymouth by far from a standing start because of his passion for the lifestyle. His desire for that business was truly aligned. And the last one, which I, when we recorded the episode, we finished talking and I thought that was an all right episode. Not bad, but it's the most referred to episode I've had since. Uh, There's a chap called Michael Lieberman. Uh, Michael is uh, runs an online portal for art dealers, art galleries. And we were chatting with Michael and just one of the things we haven't mentioned were, well, how does a working day look like for you? And Michael said, well, I get up, I don't know, 6 a.m. I do my most important task of the day. I get you know new members on board. I send out a marketing campaign. I do some critiques of this. I, you know, I do the high level stuff. And then by the time Good Morning Britain comes on, I'm pretty much done for the day. Wow. I was like, so what do you do the rest of the day? Said, oh, well, I go and grab coffee with a friend or I walk along the embankment or, you know, I, I just go to the gym. Yeah. not like, He said, I'm, I'll do more if I have to. He said, but I couldn't work eight hours a day if I tried. Wow. And we called the episode, I couldn't work eight hours a day if I tried. And that is the episode that people refer to again and again. And people say now, Michael's my hero. I'm emulating Michael, because this idea that by the time Good Morning Britain comes on, you've done the work for the day. Your your work is done. That emulating that has just become so powerful. So I think, uh, oh, hang on, Stephen Gibbons asked a question, wasn't it? Stephen, no, yeah. Stephen Gibbons is my favourite guest. That's the one I like the most. Stephen has actually got a fantastic story about the perils of overworking, and I, I will say no more than that. Other than it is a tremendous story, and I think. He also managed to name check about 12 different books in one episode. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So talking about books, your fourth book, The False Exit, Mm -hmm. what do you think your next book is going to be about? Or have you started thinking about your next book? I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking what the next book is. So I've got, I know that's an audio podcast, but I've got a little pink book here. Okay. And every time I have an idea for a book, it goes in the pink book and it, percolates for probably a couple of years and what you'll notice because you're a bomb center as well Susan so you will see this happening is you will know what my next book is going to be before I will because my next book is almost always the conversations I've been having with one percenters over the previous year okay this idea of removing yourself as the bottleneck from your business that's something that we talked about a couple of years ago You'll notice we're three years on from COVID. My advice during all the lockdowns for one percenters was just concentrate on building your evergreen assets. By coincidence, that was the book I put out in 2021. Two years before that, I was banging on about the importance of routines. That was my book, Routine Machine. So I, I've got an inkling what it's going to be, but I think I think you might know before I do. Oh, <laughs> that's very cryptic yeah yeah it's it tends to be whatever book needs to be heard so okay I'm, I'm 12 months away from starting writing yet so there are a few ideas vying it 
it's probably going to be, I'll, I'll give you a little hint, it's probably going to be something around keeping customers, customer retention, I think. Oh, okay, okay. So how long does it take you to write the book? You have the seed, you have the idea, and then is it two years and it's published? Yeah, I, I, it's probably, instead of actively working on a book, it's probably about a year. So okay. I've nailed my book writing routine now. You know I'm a routine machine, so I'm yeah. all about that. So um, some point over the next year, I will I will flash out the the skeleton structure of the book, what it will look like, what it needs to cover. Probably after the summer holidays next year, I will start writing. And then as I wrote in Routine Machine, as Mr. Bull from Peppa Pig says, it will take as long as it will take. <laughs> But I will, I will have a go, uh, and there will be a little, a little date on that, which is a date that I keep very private, because I did make the mistake the first book certainly, of saying in January this is coming out on July the fourteenth, and by the end of June, getting very, very panicked that um, I spoke to my book coach and said, oh, I'm nearly done, you know, I've just got this, this, and this to do. I've booked a yacht club for three weeks' time. And she went, well, you've got 12 weeks' worth of work to do still. Like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I will keep the pressure off. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I enjoy writing them. You know, that's no coincidence that I said I was never writing another book again because I put myself under so much stress for that no. first book. Now I love writing and I love the book writing process. I love False Exit. I finished writing that in... March of this year and basically spent five months just editing, polishing, 1% improvements. Every time I looked at it, it's a little bit better. Yeah. And we'll just we'll just go over it again, a bit better and a bit better. And again, it's this compounded gains of if you can make something, this is something any business owner can take away. If you can make something 10% better than the standard or 20% better than the standard, you probably won't sell. 10% or 20% more, you'll probably sell two times, three times more just by making it that little bit better than it needs to be, better than everyone else. Because people will notice that sort of thing. Well, that's a nice thing to end on, John. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned, as I always do when I um, talk to you, and I have to keep improving 1% every week. Exactly. Leave yourself, Some leave your business one step Leave yourself one step better. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for joining me. Thank you ever so much for having me, Susan. Really appreciate it. Okay. My name's Susan Crichton and the podcast is Cashflow Lifestyle Podcast. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you.